We're going to jump in. We are picking up John chapter 5. It's part 2 of where we were last weekend. So if you weren't here last weekend, I'll just let you know that this is part 2. The whole chapter, uh, chunk chapter 5, is all one conversation, but it was too long to handle in one uh, chunk. So we took half last week, and we're going to take the second half this week. So if you missed last week, you might want to go back and listen. Uh, Not necessarily a standalone message. Very, very important topic that we're talking about tonight. So Barna Research Group is probably the best known religious and sociological research group in North America. They've been uh, doing surveys for over 40 years, uh, uh, asking religious type questions. And recently they put out a questionnaire and of the general population in North America asking these questions, what do you think about Jesus? And here were the stats that 93% of the general population in North America said that they believed that Jesus was actually a real historical person. He actually did live. He is not a myth. 63% said in one way, shape, or form, Jesus Christ had changed their life, whatever that means. And 43% of the general population said they believed that Jesus was actually God. Now, when they drilled down a little bit deeper and they asked those who self-identified as Christians, so that first question was the general population. Now, of those who identify as Christians, they self-identify saying, yeah, I'm a follower of Christ. They ask this question further. What do you say about Jesus? And among Christians, this is not so encouraging, that only 56% said they believe Jesus is God. Interesting. 26% said he's a great spiritual leader, great teacher. And 18% of those who claim to be Christians said, hey, I'm not sure. Now, I hope and pray and I want to believe that if that survey was done here at Northview, that those statistics might be different. (laughs) And yet, I am sure that there are people attending our church who still have questions and who wonder. We know he lived historically. Uh, There's no question, no scholar and no thinking person would deny that a man named Jesus lived historically in the first century in the Middle East because there's just way too much evidence in both religious and secular sources that would say, yes, a man named Jesus lived. But that Jesus Christ was God incarnate is a different question. So we're in week two, John chapter five. Uh, Last week, just to catch you up, just a little review. Jesus is in Jerusalem and he has healed a lame man at the pool of Bethesda and he has done it on the Sabbath day. And in that single act, he captures the attention of the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. And it is a trigger event. It's a conversation that propels the persecution, the opposition to Jesus to really begin to ramp up. Now in chapter 5, until we get to chapter 11 and 12, they ultimately arrest and crucify Jesus. But that persecution really begins to ramp up in this conversation. And it is not actually the healing itself that they object to. And ultimately, it's not that it was done on the Sabbath day, although that was a big controversy to them of why are you doing this work on the Sabbath? But it is what Jesus says in response to their confrontation. The trigger event, and I mentioned last week that I think Jesus went to Jerusalem to pick a fight, and I really think he did. And in verse 18, we see him pulling the pin on the hand grenade and throwing it into the midst. When they say to him, Why are you doing this? And he says in verse 17, well, my father's always working. He doesn't take a Sabbath day off. He's always watching. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. And so my father is working and I am working right alongside of him. That was the trigger. 
And what those religious leaders heard in that moment in time, what they heard was blasphemy in their minds. Very, very clear what these people heard. They heard him claiming that God was his equal. That God the Father, God the Son, making himself out to be God. That is clearly what they heard. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't back away from it. Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, 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 you've misunderstood. I didn't mean to say that. I didn't mean to give that impression. No, instead of backing away from it, he literally dives right in. And the rest of the chapter, it's a long chunk, is his defense of who he claims to be and the evidence to back it up. So it's a challenging text. I'll just throw that out to you. Uh, It is a very rich and a very dense chunk of scripture. It is a deep dive into what we call Christology, the study of Christ. So in many ways, shape, or form, uh, this weekend is going to feel like, uh, those of you who went to Bible school, it's going to feel like Theology 101. Maybe you went to seminary and you read some big, thick books on Christology. That is, in many ways, what this teaching is going to feel like. It's far more teaching than it is preaching until we get to the application. But this question is not just a rich Christological text, it's also Christianity 101. It's always very, also a very basic and fundamental question, who did Jesus claim to be? Who did Jesus claim to be? It's a very fundamental question. Now, you may have heard people say, critics, that Jesus never claimed to be God. It may be your agnostic friend, your skeptical friend, your atheist friend, but also your Mormon friend, your Jehovah Witness friend, your Jewish friend, and your Muslim friend will also say, Jesus never claimed to be God. And in the truest sense of those words, in those very specific words, in that statement, it is true that there is no record in the New Testament that Jesus used those exact words, I am God. However... There are many, many texts that indicate that he was identified as being God, he received worship as God, and he did not push back on the statement that he was God. Now, there's many texts, and we don't have time, but we are in this one, John 5. So we're going to try to limit, I'm going to try to limit my thoughts to John 5. Jesus' personal defense of his deity. So what we're going to see is five links that he makes between him and the Father, and then five witness statements. So we're going to do 10 mini-sermons in the next two hours. And the unavoidable conclusion that this text will drive us toward, if these things are true, he is linked closely to the Father, and there are five witnesses to back him up. The unavoidable conclusion that we are going to get to at the end of this text is that because he is the Lord, he is one with the Father, we will all one day stand before him, and we will give an account for our lives. And so here's my big idea for the week is this, that gentle Jesus, Sunday school Jesus, the Jesus that you were taught as kids, all those wonderful stories about Jesus, gentle Jesus, is also our righteous judge. And we will see that clearly in this text. My prayer this week has been for those of you who have not yet come to place your faith in Jesus, that you would believe. That this weekend you would say, yes, I finally hear it, I get it, I see it, I understand it. I must place my faith in this man who claimed to be God, Jesus Christ. And for many of you, the majority of you perhaps, who have already believed that you will rejoice more fully in your salvation in Christ. That's the goal. So lots to cover, so buckle up. John 5, 18. They make it very clear that they heard Jesus claiming to be God. This man thinks that he is God. That's the bridge, verse 18. And then we're going to read the next 12 verses, 19 to 30. 
So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives him life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life. Those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, I don't know if you noticed, uh, that's a long chunk, 12 verses, but it bookends, there's mirror text. The first line and the last line were mirror images. I do nothing of my own. Verse 19, the son can do nothing on his own accord. And then verse 30, a repeat, an echo of that. I can do nothing on my own. And what Jesus is saying in that bookend is that I don't operate independently of my father. That we are in lockstep one with one another. What he does is what I do. His will is my will. His actions are my actions. And embedded in this text, and here's where it gets a little bit, you know, nerdy theological, are what scholars call five causal statements, five because statements, uh, all beginning with the phrase for, the, the English word for. It's the same word in Greek. English, it's, there's five times you see for, and we're going to look at them. This reason is true. It's the cause. It's the because statement. And we would look at it today and we would go, these are the hyperlinks. So you're reading an email or you're reading a document and there's a little bit of font that's in a different color. You hover over it with your mouse, you click on it and boom, it opens up a whole nother, you've done this, right? You've hyperlinked to the original source. So Jesus hyperlinks in this text in five ways between him and the father. And we're gonna look at them just briefly. So verse 19, what the father does, the son does likewise. Everything that Jesus does is at his father's initiative. It's like the, a beautiful dance partnership. Now, I cannot dance at all. My children would tell you that. They're like, Dad, please don't dance. But I love watching beautiful dance, whether it's ballroom dance or the tango or whatever it is, or even the dance that takes place on ice, right? The, the ice capades, those kind of things. This wonderful partnership, and as I understand, there's one of those partners is taking the lead, and the other is literally in lockstep with them. As one moves, the other moves. It's just in tandem, moving back and forth. And the thought runs like this, that the son doesn't act independently from the father. What's interesting is you read this text, he is submissive to the father. The Father's will becomes his will, and yet he is equal to the Father. 
So his willing submission to God the Father does not make him less than the Father. He is perfectly 100% equal with the Father, and yet he willingly submits himself to the Father's will. That's very interesting. Verse 20, for the Father loves the Son. He does what the Father does, and the Father loves him. And the Father displays his love through the Son. And the Father's action of sending the Son is rooted in his love. So remember back in chapter 3, verse 16, very famous text. God so loved the world that he gave his Son. The action of God's giving and doing was rooted in God's love. And Jesus, then, is God's love on display in full and living color. And he goes on to say, and you're going to see greater things than you've already seen. This little healing at the pool of Bethesda is just one thing. I will go on to raise the dead on three different occasions. He raises the dead. And most importantly, he himself will rise from the grave. So in other words, he says to them, you have just begun to see the glory of God. You've just begun to see the love of God. Verse 21, for the father raises the dead. Third statement. And he gives the son the same power. Now, this is interesting. Because in Jewish tradition, (coughs) in Old Testament tradition, it was assumed that there were three things that only God could do. These three. Only God could control the rain. Only God controls the weather. God specifically will send the rain to water the crops. Only God oversees the act in that moment of conception when this human being becomes a living soul. It is God who opens the womb. And then thirdly, only God, the Almighty, has the ability to raise the dead. And I I put some references there on the screen, and you can look at those. But Jesus says here, God the Father has given me the power to raise the dead. So Old Testament tradition was only Jehovah God. Only God the Father has the power to raise the dead. And Jesus right here says, no, he's given me the power to raise the dead. The fourth statement is this, for the Father judges no one, but the Father delegates judgment to the Son. Now again, Old Testament thought was that God the Father, Jehovah God, was the only just judge of the entire world. Only God. God was the creator and sustainer of the universe. Therefore, we're accountable to him. If he created us, we have to respond to him. So God the Father is the judge. So you may remember the conversation. God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He pulls Lot and his family out. I'm going to destroy this city. And then Lot starts to argue with the angel of the Lord. You remember this conversation? Like if there's 50 righteous people, surely the Lord wouldn't destroy. If there's 40 righteous people, if there's 30 righteous people, if there's 10 righteous people, surely the Lord wouldn't. And so the passage goes like this. Far be it from you, Genesis 18, 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. Now here's our phrase. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? What it is acknowledging is that Jehovah God... Old Testament thought, Jehovah God is the judge of the earth. But here, Jesus says he's given judgment to the Son. Why? Well, verse 23, he gave the reason. So that people would honor the Son just like they honor the Father. And in fact, if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. And then finally, the fifth causal phrase. If you go down to verse 26, for the Father has life in himself, and he is also granted that the Son is the giver of life. So the Son is both the creator and the sustainer. You go back to John chapter 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
Uh, Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that the Father has given the gift of life into the Son's hand. So you remember in the introduction that the Word was with God, the Word was God, everything was created through Him. There's nothing that has been not been created through Him. All things exist through Him. Hebrews says He upholds the universe by the Word of His power. He is the Creator. He is the Sustainer. So now you ask the question, did Jesus claim to be God? Very clear in this text that I and the Father are one. Very, very clear. Five causal statements. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, how you doing? Are you right? A few of you sleeping? Classic Bible school? Fall asleep. We got another half yet to get through, so stay with me. Now, someone is going to rightly say, you can't just claim this on your own. You can't just stand up and declare whatever you want to declare without giving some evidence. You can't lie to the public without being held accountable. There's a a little man named George Santos right now who is facing some of these exact questions in the U.S. House of Representatives. You cannot put together a false resume and not have somebody look into it and realize you didn't attend the college that you said you attended. What is the evidence? Well, Jesus knows it too. He knows the Old Testament law. In fact, Jesus wrote the Old Testament law, right? Deuteronomy 19, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So Jesus gives us five. You need two or three. His own testimony is actually number six and then five others. We're going to run quickly because I want to get through this and then get to some application. John the Baptist testifies about me, he says first. John the Baptist, verse 31 to 35. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. You went out to see this guy called John the Baptist, and you asked him back in John 1:19, are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? And John the Baptist is like, nope, 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 not me, not me, not me. Then who are you? I'm just one saying, prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. I am not him, but he is on his way. And then you get to chapter 1, verse 29, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist points at Jesus and goes, Right there is your salvation, the Lamb of God who will be slain. Verse 36, look at my works. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Witness number two, the works that I am doing. They are the Father's work, but I am doing them. Miracles and healings, and they speak for themselves. So Nicodemus acknowledged this. Now, I'm just pulling together all these threads. I know you remember every sermon you heard all the way through the fall, right? So when we were talking Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says this, we know that you're a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So the miracles that you are doing prove that you have God on your side. Verse 37 and 38, the father also testifies to me. The father who has sent me himself bore witness about me. 
His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. So the father has testified, but there's this funky little question there. The father speaks, but you don't hear his voice. The father shows himself, but you don't see his form. What's Jesus dealing with there? Well, many commentators say it's a reference back to Jesus' baptism. And at Jesus' baptism, Matthew 3 records it, that a spirit comes down on him like a dove, and then the father's voice speaks from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Some hear it and some don't. So his disciples hear the words and they take it as a voice from the father. Others are like, oh, there's thunder. There's something going on. It's just a noise to them. And so Jesus says to these people, you know what? My father spoke, but you didn't hear. You didn't have ears to hear. Although my followers heard it, you did not hear. The father has testified, but you could not receive it. Verse 39 and 40. Now it gets really good. The scriptures bear witness about me. So we've got John the Baptist. We've got the father. We've got the works. And now he says the scriptures Speak about me. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. You, scribes and Pharisees, you who spend so much time in the scripture, you who should know better than anyone else, warning you can read the Bible and miss Jesus. Now, this was Old Testament, but Jesus is all the way through the Old Testament. You are studying the word, and you're not getting to Jesus. D.A. Carson says this, that Jesus insists that there is nothing intrinsically life-giving about studying the scriptures if one fails to discern their true content and purpose. These are the scriptures, Jesus says, that testify about me. Now, all of you will have heard us say this. We are encouraging you. We're inviting you. We are challenging you. Would you join us this year in reading through the Bible? So would you pick up one of those cards and read a couple chapters a day? And over the course of this year, we're going to read together 1,189 chapters of the Old and the New Testament. And I hope many of you do that. And I know many of you are joining us. But if you read it simply to check off the box and say, duty done, and you don't dig into it and say, God, make your word live to me. Let me see in these three chapters of today, let me see how this ties to Jesus and how it speaks to my salvation and the grace of God and the mercy of God. Like tie it all together, Lord, because I want to know what it means. These men studied the scriptures and they missed Jesus. And then finally, if you drop down a few more, you get the fifth witness and it is Moses. Verse 45 to 47 do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. There's one who will accuse you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Don't believe Moses, the books of the law. You won't believe me either. Now, I need to take just a little sidebar there. There's a whole message I'd love to preach right there in a moment. But let me just put it in a moment. Jesus affirms the truth and the authority of the Old Testament. Let me say it again. Jesus affirms the truth and the authority of the Old Testament. So you will sometimes hear people say, I'm sure you've heard this. I've heard it many, many times. Well, I'm not much of an Old Testament person. I'm a New Testament person. You ever heard anybody say that? I don't really like the God of the Old Testament. I like the God of the New Testament. You know what? It's the same God. One and the same. 
And here Jesus settles it once and for all when he says to these people, if you don't believe the Old Testament scriptures, you won't believe me either. At the end of the story, after the resurrection, before he's ascended, he spends some time with the disciples. There's a conversation happens on the road to Emmaus, the evening of his resurrection. And Luke 24, 27 says, beginning with Moses, Jesus is talking to these men and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so now not just the books of the law, now all the books of the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. What Bible did they have? They didn't yet have the New Testament. They only had the Old Testament. And Jesus, would you not like to have sat in that classroom? Jesus teaching about Jesus from the Old Testament. Would that not be cool? He walked them, it said, through Moses, through the prophets, and their eyes finally are open, and they're like, we get it, we see it. It's all centered on Jesus. Jesus is the hermeneutical key to unlocking all of Scripture. So that's the text. Five links to the Father and five witnesses. Ten mini-sermons. And then it leaves us with this question. Why does it matter? So what? You've sat through a great Christological text. You've survived theology class. Let's go for lunch, right? But there are some very important implications and applications. We can't just shrug our shoulders and walk away and say, well, it doesn't really apply to me. Now, remember the thesis of the book. We remind you almost every week. John says at the end, I'm writing this so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is why I am writing. All the stories included in the 21 chapters in this letter are written to convince you Jesus is God. And if Jesus be God, and if these claims are true, then he holds the keys to life and death. He holds the keys to our eternal destiny. So Jesus, that we so often and rightly portray as lowly and gentle and meek and mild. Jesus, that we talk about how tender he is with sinners, how he restores people, how the Old Testament prophecy about him that the bruised reed he won't break, the smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In other words, when you're down and out, Jesus doesn't kick you. He doesn't do the final, break it, fine, you're done, you're already broken, I'll just do the rest. No, restoring, that Jesus heals and restores, that Jesus seeks out the lost and the least. This very same Jesus, what this text tells us, will one day call us out of the grave to stand before him in judgment. The gentle Jesus is indeed also our righteous judge. So verse 21, he said, as the father raises the dead, so too does the son. And in verse 25, he said, an hour is coming and an hour is now here when the dead will hear his voice and rise. Uh, interesting, there is coming a day or the hour is here. Which is it? Present tense or future tense? Yeah, it's both. Yes, the answer is yes, both. In the present tense, in this moment, God is calling us from life to death. Ephesians 2 unpacks this in great detail. When it says, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were separated from God because of our sin, that God makes us alive. It's God's action. 
It's the Father's work. God calls us, it says, from the tomb. Now, what's very interesting, if you're reading Ephesians clearly, is the agent that he uses to call us is clearly Jesus Christ. God makes us alive, but if you read the text, he made us alive with Christ. He seated us in Christ at his right hand. The riches and kindness of his grace toward us is found in Christ. You are far off, but you are brought near by Christ. The Father calls you from the grave, but Jesus is his agent. Got it? One and the same. And if you read further, actually, the Spirit is also given credit. It is Jesus who uses the Spirit who calls us. So the Trinity is there. In the present tense, God is calling us from life to death. Now go back to chapter 5, and Jesus says, The Father's given me authority to call you from your grave. Interesting. So Charles Spurgeon, one of the famous preachers, late 1800s, Baptist guy over in England, uh, amazing preacher and trainer of preachers. And the story is told that in his preacher's college, he would take these young preachers out to the cemetery at least once a year, and make them stand among the tombs and say, preach to these tombs. Because that is what declaring the gospel is like. You are preaching to dead people. You are calling dead people to awaken, and only God can awaken them. You need to understand this as a preacher. You cannot, it's like going to the cemetery and saying, wake up. You got no power. Same thing when you stand before people with the word of God. You have no power unless the spirit of God takes what you do. Now, yes, we are his hands. We are his feet. We are his voice. But unless the spirit of God shows up and quickens the ear, we can preach all we want. We can testify all we want. We can witness all we want. And it is why we so earnestly pray, oh God, would you do what we cannot do? The weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of man. We demolish strongholds. We tear down the obstacles of faith in the war room of prayer. Because we're like, Lord, only you can call dead people to life. But then Jesus says here, now is the time I am calling you to life. The Father has given me this authority, but also I'm revealing to you another day. Verse 28 and 29, we read it earlier. There is coming a day when all in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. So, what Jesus is pointing to here clearly is the final day of judgment. And if you take nothing else with you out of this weekend's message, you must take this to heart. I pray that you will hear this. You have to grapple with this concept that there is coming a day when all will stand before him. When every living person who has ever walked the planet in every generation for all of human history on all six or seven continents, however you count them, from every racial background, every socioeconomic spectrum, educated not, rich, poor, etc., etc., every living person will one day stand before the king of kings. Now, we sing a lot of songs about this. So many of them are beautiful, love them. One of my favorites recently, how I long to breathe the air of heaven. Where pain is gone and mercy fills the streets to look upon the one who bled to save me and walk with him for eternity. Now, the second verse says it. There will be a day when all will bow before him. There will be a day when death will be no more. And standing face to face with he who died and rose again, do you know what we're gonna be saying? 
Holy, 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 holy. Not just three. Holy, holy. They go on. You read Revelation on and on and on. Completely other. Holy, 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 holy is the Lord. Philippians 2. God has highly exalted him, Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every human who has ever lived is one day going to confess. Now, some will do it as Savior, and others will do it as judge. Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he'll sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he'll separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So John the Apostle, who wrote the letter that we're studying, also wrote the last book of the Bible, the Revelation of Jesus. And in Revelation chapter 4, he is caught up into a vision, and he finds himself standing before the throne room of the holy God, and the holy God, we are told, has a scroll of judgment in his hand. And there is no one that can be found who is worthy to open that scroll. And John begins to weep. And an angel comes to him and says, hey, 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 don't, don't weep. Don't weep. There is one who is worthy to open the scroll. It's the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah. And John's like, the Lion of Judah's here? And he swings around to see the Lion of Judah. And instead of the lion... There is the lamb. And one of the elders said, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, and so he can open the scroll. But then go on one verse later, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain. The lion of Judah and the lamb who was slain is one and the same person, and he is worthy to open the scroll, the scroll of God's judgment. And so this lamb, this little gentle lamb that we call Jesus, slain for the sins of humanity, is now the only one worthy. And this is very, very cool because now the smoke machine starts pumping. And it's not a dry ice machine. It's incense and it's the prayers of the saints, we are told. So every prayer that you have prayed through your lifetime and all the prayers through all the centuries are rising before the throne room of God and it's like this holy smoke machine going up before the Lord and then the slain lamb of God and the angels and the elders around the throne begin to say a new song saying, worthy are you to take this scroll, the scroll of judgment, and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. It means all means all means all. That's all all means. Everything. Saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and glory and honor and might forever and ever. And what Revelation 5 and John 5 have in common is this. They tell us that there is going to be a day when every person who has ever lived will stand alive again. And that great day of the Lord is what it is called when justice will finally prevail over the earth. And if you get to the end of the Revelation, it says this, And then I saw the great white throne... And him who was seated on it, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The question you have to ask when you read that text is, how do I get my name in that book? Now come back to John chapter 5 and hear the words of Jesus. Because he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he is passed from death to life. So there's two truths that we've got to see, and then we've got to land this baby. Number one is that for those who are in Christ, the judgment is past tense. The judgment has already been poured out on the one who says, come to me and have life. Hear my words, believe in me, place your confidence in my finished work. It's, there's many texts, one of the most famous, Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Hallelujah. If you're in Christ, judgment, past tense. Heidelberg Catechism, ask this question. How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? How does that phrase that he's going to judge the living and the dead, how does that bring you comfort and the answer is this, that in all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Amen? Hallelujah. That's my comfort. That's my comfort in this judge because he's already poured out judgment on himself. Secondly, and equally clear, is that those who refuse to come to him, the judgment is future. Those who have come to him, judgment is past. It's in Christ. Those who refuse to come to him, the judgment is future. And for the unbeliever, John 9, 5, 29, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And the good works it's talking about there is not weighing out on the scale. How much good did you do? How much bad did you do? It is a very specific work. It is the good work that you should have done in this life, the good work of believing in Christ. Amen. And the evil work is simply the evil work of refusing to come to faith in Christ. That is what he's speaking about. Not I'm going to weigh out all the good things and all the bad things I've done. No, it's one issue. What's the good you have done with Jesus? So this message is urgent. Because one day, God is going to call forth from the grave every person who has ever lived. Go through your Rolodex of all the people that you know in human history. Everybody from Adolf Hitler to Mother Teresa. Everybody from Mother the Mary of Jesus to Mary Magdalene the prostitute. Like you make all the comparisons you want to make. Every single human being who's ever walked the planet will one day stand before the Lord to give an account for what they have done with Jesus Christ. And the only question that's going to matter in that moment is what have you done with Jesus? On what merit can you come into the presence of a holy God? And so Jesus' message is urgent. That's why we see it there in the truly, truly, or amen, amen, or in our modern language, this is important. This is urgent. Gentle Jesus, Sunday school Jesus, is also our righteous judge. And we can stand before him dressed in the life that he has given us, or we can refuse to come to him and stand condemned on that final day. But here, friends, is the key. That decision is a decision that you make this side of eternity. It's a decision you make this side of the grave, not the other side of the grave. We live this day in light of that day. 
And so our cry has to be, oh God, open my eyes, open my ears, open my heart. Let me understand this. It's the call to move from unbelief into full belief. It's the call to stop refusing to come to Jesus and instead to surrender our lives fully to him, to hear, to believe, and to receive. And so I'm praying today that today is a day of salvation for many who will hear this message. That you would say, I've heard your voice, Jesus. And I'm saying yes. I'm giving you my life and I'm asking you to make your life my life. And then you say, what's next? Well, you know what's next for the majority of us? Those who would say, yeah, I made that decision years ago. I hate it when people say it like that. Yeah, I made it years ago. It's like, no, I made it years ago. Woo! What's next? We fall in worship at the feet of our Savior and our judge. And we cry with the saints around the throne that you're worthy of our worship. We cultivate a big picture of Jesus. It's not just Sunday school Jesus. It's not just Jesus meek and mild, but it's warrior Jesus of Revelation 19 who comes riding into town on the back of a white stallion with a sword out of his mouth. That's the kind of Jesus we need. And we lay down our lives on the altar of sacrifice. Our worship is our daily lives poured out in honor. And then we get up and we live for Christ. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I'll honor him in all that I do. C.T. Studd, I'll just throw up this one quote and then we're done. Famous missionary of a generation ago, founder of Worldwide Evangelical Fellowship, said this, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. So what say ye? What say ye? What have you done with Jesus? Let's stand together. We'll pray. Team is going to come and lead us. Lord, I pray that you would take this text that is such a dense, rich theological treatise. It's a text scholars love. I'd love to sit in the classroom and in the study with commentaries and original languages and parse it out. There's so much in this text. And yet, Lord, it's also very, very practical. Christianity 101. Who do you say that I am? And so, Jesus, I pray that you'd make yourself real to each and every one of us. I pray for the individual who says, you know what, I've not yet seen it. I've not heard it. I've not understood it. I want to. I'm not sure God exists, but if he does, I want to know him. Lord, I would pray that you would answer that prayer for them, that you'd open their eyes, that you'd open the ears, that they could understand, and that you would be calling, even in this moment, you would be calling men and women, boys and girls, from death into life. But Father, I also thank you for the joy and the celebration we have that we know that if we tarry, if we live until you come, or if we die before you return, that one day we're going to stand before you fully alive again that you're going to call us all out of the grave and we're going to stand there with millions upon millions in front of you and we will either bow before you and worship as our Savior and Lord or we will bow before you as our judge. And Lord, we look forward to that day when we worship with the saints around your throne. And so Father, would you seal it into our hearts and would you cause it to make a difference in how we live our daily lives that because of this joy, we worship you, we surrender to you. We give our lives to you as living sacrifices, and we get out of bed every day saying, Lord, this life is yours. It was bought with a price, so therefore I'm going to honor you in this life. 
We commit that to you in Jesus' name, amen.